Uh, We've been in this book now for several weeks. This is part number 16. As we've been walking through this letter to this church. Um, I think it's important to remember that. That the writer of Hebrews is addressing a church much like ours. He is addressing people in pews. Or perhaps they didn't have pews. But he's addressing people in pews. You can think of it that way. He's addressing a group of believers that he was familiar with, that he was fond of, and that he was hoping and praying that they would rejoice in what they had. And I think as we close this particular series, it's interesting to note the last verses. Verses we didn't read, but I think it's interesting to note the last closing verses of chapter 13. If you go to chapter 13, look at verse 22 and notice what the writer Relays. He says, I appeal, appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, and with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. And I draw your attention to those verses because I think at first uh, our our gut reaction is to sort of skip over the ends of these letters of the New Testament. Um, There's just a lot of boilerplate stuff, right? There's just thanking this guy and greet this dude and and come see me. I can't wait to see you. There doesn't appear at first that there would be much that is relevant to us, much that we should resonate with in sort of these final last little instructions, these last little parting words before the writer sort of closes the book on this letter. This is just standard stuff. And in fact, in a way, actually, these verses, if you're just reading it from like a literary standpoint, these verses almost appear anticlimactic in a way. They almost appear as if they sort of are tacked on to the end of this beautifully written ending. The verses we read in verses 17 through 21 end this book, they seem to at least, they end this book so masterfully that the the glory and the grace of Jesus is with this church forever. Amen. It seems like a more fitting place to conclude. So why does he include these last few verses? These verses that might on the surface appear tacked on, might appear anticlimactic, but I would argue that they're not at all. And in fact, we should not dismiss what he says in these last four verses of this chapter. Even though we're, we might be given to overlook them, I actually think what they do is they, they harmonize, they sort of summarize everything that he's been talking about in this last chapter. But let's take a step back because let's remember what the writer's purpose is. From the very beginning of this whole letter, his, his purpose has been clear. It's been clear from the get-go. Jesus is better. It's the, perhaps the most simple, in a way, simple of all of the themes and purposes out of all the New Testament letters. The writer's sole purpose has been to convey and uphold the superiority of Jesus to anything and everything. Nothing can hold a candle to Jesus. Nothing even comes close to comparing as an object of worship. You can't compare the prophets. You can't compare the angels. You can't compare Moses. You can't compare Joshua. You can't compare Aaron. You can't compare any priest. You can't compare any sacrifice. Jesus is better than them all. That's essentially, in a nutshell, what he's been arguing for. 
And he's been trying and he's been urging and he's petitioning this church to see that, that they would see and know with every ounce of them that this is true. And that's why that refrain that's repeated throughout this letter, hold fast. That's why he repeats it. He's urging this church, hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to your faith. This is, what is, your, this is where your confidence lies. In the, in the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who, as our priest, has taken away our sins. And as we noted, as we went through chapter number 10, he said, part of holding fast to that confession, part of what that means and part of what that looks like, as he says in verse 25 of chapter 10, part of what that means is holding fast to each other. Let me read that verse, chapter 10, verse 25. Remember what he said? The writer of Hebrews says, not... Or let me back up to verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, put yourself in the shoes of these New Testament first century believers. They are struggling with a wave of pressure and persecution coming on them. Coming down upon them and it's, it's, it's pressuring them to want to disperse, to want to drop the church at the first sign of trouble. And the writer is urging them, don't, don't fall away, stay assembled, don't just, just neglect this amazing, uh, this amazing event called the assembly of the church. Instead, be together all the more. Those are his words. And throughout this letter, he's urged this church to see what they have in each other. As they are looking unto Jesus, they also have those who are next to them looking unto Jesus. And the only way then that they could face all of these struggling days, all of these harrowing days, all of these horrific uh, mounds of pressure and persecution was to face them together. By faith. That's what he's been urging them to see. That they cannot withstand these days on their own, nor were they meant to. It was only by their mutual, their, their, their collective looking unto Jesus that that's what would allow them to, to get through. Even as the writer, as we looked at last week, as the writer has hinted at that there's coming a day when this whole cosmos, this whole creation is going to shake. And all of that leads him to consider what he considers in chapter number 13. As he's urged them, he's encouraged them, stay together, stay assembled, don't disperse, don't get distracted, don't defect from the faith. Stay assembled as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus, the great high priest. And that leads him then to consider in chapter 13 what it looks like to live in the church. What does it look like to live with each other, with other believers, with other sinners, with other strugglers, with other sufferers? What does it look like for them to be together in the church doing life with one another? Well, that's what this chapter is all about. It's about life 
with each other, which we could probably call a primer on the church. What does it look like for us to function, to live, to act as the church of God, as he called us in chapter 12, the assembly of the firstborn? What does that look like? Well, actually, I think that's what those verses give us. Verses 22 through the end, I think, give us a snapshot of what it looks like for us to live and act and function as the church. And we're going to consider that through three headings, or we could call them three callings. Three headings or callings of the church that we are called to be. Number one, we are called to be doctrinally responsible. We are called to be doctrinally responsible. And this is an interesting occasion in verse 22. Because the writer gets a little bit vulnerable with what he's been given to say. Which I find really interesting. Notice it again, verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. You note that as he ends this letter, he's, he's confessing a couple things to them. He's asking them to bear with this sermon, in effect, he's saying. He's asking them. He's basically begging them. That's what that word appeal means. He's, I'm begging you, please put up with, please receive and put up with the sermon that I've given to you over the course of 13 chapters. He's getting a little bit vulnerable with them because he knows, I think, He's gone to some deep places. Remember all those times we were talking about the priesthood? We talked about Melchizedek. And he's gone to some deep places in terms of theology, in terms of doctrine, in terms of what they are called to believe. And indeed, even though he said, I've written to you briefly, this is one of the longer New Testament letters. So he knows that he's gone deep and he's gone a little long. And he's saying, I'm sorry for it. I know that some of my words probably cut you. To the quick. But he loves this church too much. To compromise or to cut short what he wants them to know. What he wants them to receive. Which is this amazing truth regarding Jesus Christ. And I think this again just demonstrates how aware he is. And how fond he is of this bunch of believers. He knows again that he's doctrinally responsible for them. He cares deeply and he's been called to care deeply about what they believe. And that's why he says, put up with this word of exhortation. Put up and and share and receive this comfort, this consolation that I have given to you. And this again speaks to what his endeavor has been. His his mission, his his goal, his his aim has not been to, to sort of just stir the pot, so to speak. He's not just been looking as he's, as he's gone through all those chapters, all of those different doctrines, all those different words from all those other previous sections. He's not been looking to disturb their faith. He's actually been looking to confirm it, to make it firm and sure. And that's why he's been sort of waiting over the last 12 chapters through what we could call an ocean of doctrine. There's a lot A lot of biblical doctrine within this letter that we've covered. And you might bristle at that word. You might shudder at it. (laughs) Doctrine is a word that seems stuffy and highbrow and formal. But whether you're aware of it or not, you're living your life according to a doctrine. 
And now the writer of Hebrews is there showing, he's showing his concern for the doctrines that this church is living by. That's filling them, that's filling their hearts and their ears and their minds and their souls. And he says basically, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for your well-being, for your soul. And that's why I'm telling you this. And he isn't the only concerned party. Look at verse number 7. He calls them to remember those who've gone before. He says, notice verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's saying, I'm not the only one who's been concerned for you. I'm not the only one who's been doctrinally responsible for you. Remember those other leaders who came before? They spoke to you God's words. They spoke to you the doctrines of Christ. And I have no doubt in my mind that he's thinking about the apostles. Peter and Paul and others perhaps who had visited this church. Many of whom by this time, if if you take the date in which I believe this letter was written, which is roughly the end of the 60s AD, but I, I think roughly if you believe that, then most of those apostles have been martyred. Paul and Peter especially. And I think no doubt in my mind, he's recalling those who visited them, who gave them, brought them the amazing things of the gospel, the amazing truth that Jesus is the one who redeems them from the curse of the law. All of those amazing doctrines that Paul and Peter and others proclaimed. He's saying, remember those guys. Remember how they gave you the words of Christ. And he says, Imitate their way of life. And again, the outcome of which is what? That their doctrines cost them their life. And he's saying, remember that. Remember them and follow them. They're the only ones that are worth following, that are worth imitating. Why? Because they're the ones who gave you the words of God. Notice again what he says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the words of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The church, you see is now here being called to imitate, to follow, to take as an example the faith of those who've gone before them, the faith of those who've led them by, by doing what? By following their doctrinal example, if you will. And that, that example of what they believed or what these leaders were trying to get them to believe as well is conveyed nowhere better than that verse, verse number 8. The, the, the apostles' doctrine, if you will, is what? Is that Jesus Christ is the same. This is the example of what we have been given as those who have been preaching the word to this church. And he says, likewise, believe in that word. There's no variance with this Christ. This high priest forever for you. He's not a fickle priest. He's not a fickle savior. He's not an erratic sword of God. He's he's not moody. God never changes his mind about you. 
God in Christ has already made a decision about you from the before the foundation of the world. And that decision was, I'm going to take that person's sin upon my shoulders and I'm going to settle the debt of sin forever by dying. By taking your sin as my own and in exchange, I'm going to offer righteousness for free. That's the decision God has made and that decision never changes It never wavers. It never is alterable. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, there are other doctrines that shoot off of this one. But this is the heartbeat of the apostles' doctrine. This is the heartbeat of what the church was founded on. And similarly, this is what the writer has called them to consider. Consider this Jesus who doesn't waver, who doesn't change, who doesn't vacillate. He is not a fluctuating God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You heard it from Peter and Paul. Remember that? And he's saying to them, don't forget it. Notice verse 9 as he says, don't be led away. By diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He's saying this is, this is the thing we believe. This is the doctrine I've been trying to convey to you. Jesus Christ is the same. And there's other things that are going to try and to persuade you. To, to allure you. To attract you to them. These strange and diverse teachings. Many of which threatened to lead many, many astray, even in that day. Rules about how to follow this God and all of the sorts and all of the like. But the writers here are conveying this one singular truth. That there is one teaching, there is one doctrine that could strengthen them. That was good for them. That was, as he says there, that is good for the heart. And what is it? It's a steady diet of the unmerited favor of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what he's been conveying to them through this whole incredible book. It's sort of reminiscent of Paul. Where he says in 1 Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what he was wanting to convey through all of his letters, through all of his preaching, through all of his sermons. I am designed that you know that. You could say, that's Paul's doctrine. And even though the church might not be attracted, or excuse me, might be attracted to something else, might be attracted to some other belief system, there wasn't an ounce of good that could come from anything else. All those other doctrines would do, would leave you, lead you astray. Lead you to be open to being tossed to and fro, as it says in the book of Ephesians, with every wind of doctrine. What the church needed, what the church needed most was not this writer's words. They needed God's words. Even if they didn't know that's what they needed. Even if they didn't want to hear it. And that's why he tells them in verse 22, bear with this word of encouragement. Bear with this doctrine that I've been trying to relate to you. It comes from Paul. It comes from Peter. And I know more than anything that it's what you need. And then he gets even more vulnerable in verse number 17. Notice what he says. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. 
For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see what he's doing? He's urging them, listen to these who are watching over you. Obey to them, submit to them, yield to them, listen to them. Those who are in leadership, those who are speaking the doctrines of God, be persuaded of them. Give your allegiance to them because they are the ones, as he says, that are watching over you. As that word literally implies, they are shepherding your souls. To be frank, I think this verse gives us the best articulation of what it means to be doctrinally responsible for someone. You're watching over their eternity, over where they're going to spend forever. That's what it means when we say to be doctrinally responsible for someone. Because what you believe has a direct bearing on that. Can I get really real with you for a second? Because I think this verse, verse number 17, is one of the most raw verses in the New Testament, if I can put it that way. If you want to know why, why pastors sometimes call their ministries a grind, if you want to know why more than a few pastors battle depression, and why more than a few pastors have called it quits in recent years, and some uh, have even resorted to taking their own life, is this verse right here. It's verse number 17. Pastoring and leading a church may not look high risk, But in fact, it's one of the weightiest things that you could ever choose to do because you don't just have uh, people that are around you that you're responsible for. You have souls on the line. You're responsible for shepherding people's eternal souls and where they're going to spend eternity. And pastors who are worth their salt, who are are doctrinally responsible, they feel this in their bones. That every time they stand or that they sit and they lead or they counsel or they preach or whatever, that the person in front of them has an eternity that's at stake. And they will have to answer, they will have to give an account for how they have cared for those souls that God has put them in charge of. What a humbling position to be in. Every pastor ever who has led a church has been a shepherd of souls, whether they've realized it or not. And ultimately, they answer not to the people in front of them, they answer to God alone. My calling to you is to answer to God for how I have shepherded you. That's the way the church was designed to work. And even though pastors know that and feel that, what happens? Folks sometimes still groan and crumple and they go their own way. The sheep that you're shepherding as a pastor sometimes bite and it hurts something fierce. (laughs) That's why the writer here admits and he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning because they're leading you into the boundless, amazing, fruit-giving, life-giving doctrines of God. And it's to your advantage that you receive this with humility and with faith. That's what he's ushering them to see. That's the calling of those who lead the church. 
They're shepherding souls and amazing doctrines of God. And life together, life in the church, life in the assembly of the firstborn, it means just that. It means recognizing that there are those within your life, there are those that are in your life that have been raised up by God to be doctrinally responsible for you. They're keeping watch over you. And this is what it means. And this gets to the heart of what it means to be the church. Namely, what? That we are called to be doctrinally responsible also for each other. Leaders, pastors, they're called to speak God's words. That's his doctrines. The truths of what he has come to reveal about himself. The truths of salvation and so on and so forth. The members of the church are called to check those words against the word. The Bible. And the whole fellowship is called to build each other up with those same words in the word. You see, I'm doctrinally responsible for you. And you're doctrinally responsible for me. And we're all doctrinally responsible for each other. And the way in which the church is built up is when we realize that these doctrines aren't lifeless. They're not boring, cold facts that are found in academic textbooks. They're the life-giving doctrines of the God who has deemed it necessary that he would come and die for those he loves. And this is what we get to rejoice in. And this is what we get to fellowship in. This is what we get to celebrate. And that's why we're here together, here this morning, is that we are realizing that there's only one teaching, there's only one truth, there's only one doctrine that actually does what it says it's going to do. And it's the doctrine that we receive when we look unto Jesus. That's why in chapter 12, he made such an emphasis of that. And that's why every single time we walk into these, walk through those doors, that's our focus where it ought to be. Looking unto Jesus. There, there's so many other teachings we could promote or, or convey. We, we, could, we could do all number of things from this platform. We could do all kinds of sort of entertaining and, light and, and, and sort of things that might draw your attention or attract your gaze for a few seconds. I've said this before. I'm, I'm, I'm not an entertainer. I'm not a jokester. <laughs> I don't pretend to have a way to entertain you. And again, I don't think that's my job. My job is to be doctrinally responsible for your soul. And what's the only thing that's going to safeguard your soul for all of eternity? It's the message of Christ for you. You want to know why every single time when I stand behind this pulpit, my prayer is, Lord, let them see Jesus. It's because I know there's nothing else that will ever reach down into your soul and pluck you from the depths of sin and relieve you in the life-giving righteousness of Jesus other than looking to Jesus. People all the time. Sometimes go to church and they they want to hear something light and fluffy and they want to be spoken to. Our responsibility 
is to uphold high the doctrines of Christ, the fact that he is the one who redeemed us from the curse by being made a curse, and that now we can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's only possible by him taking our place. The church is formed and founded and bounded together by that one truth. The doctrines of Christ that we are called to share and to celebrate. But not only are we called to be doctrinally responsible, number two, and I must hasten, I'm sorry, I must hasten. We are are also called to, number two, to be continually serving. Continually serving. Because I think it's awesome how the writer, what he does, is he, he, he's talked about doctrine and then he uses doctrine to make a point about what I would call the defining characteristic of what it means to live as a church member. Notice what he says in verse number 10, Hebrews 13, verse 10. He says, we have an altar From which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought unto the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Here, he's drawing their attention back to that day that we've noted before. It's the day of atonement. You can go... Actually, yeah, go with me. Keep your place there and go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, and I'll, I'll try and summarize this as best as I can. This is the, the articulation, the expression of the Day of Atonement here in the book of Leviticus. It's the, the day in which the high priest would enter, the only day, mind you, he would enter the holy places to make an atoning sacrifice for all the people's sins. And the writer in Hebrews 13 is drawing their minds again to that very day of that very ritual. And at the start of that ritual, Aaron would take, Aaron the high priest would take a bull and he would slaughter the bull as a sin offering for himself. Remember, we noted that, how interesting it was that the priests needed an atonement for themselves and why it's so awesome that Jesus does not. He's the priest that doesn't need to atone for himself because he's perfect. But Aaron would take a bull, slaughter it for himself, and then he would take two goats, if you remember, And one would be a goat as the sin offering for the people. One goat he would leave alive. And that goat later on in the service, he would lay his hands on it. And he would basically impart and impute all of of the people's sins to that goat. And then that goat would be left alone and brought out into the wilderness. What we would often call the scapegoat. In In a way, that goat that was left Alive was meant to be uh, taken away as a picture of the one who would take away our sins. Our sins are imputed to him and he takes them away into death. The other goat that was left alive, only left alive for a moment. The other goat was taken further into that tabernacle, further into that place of holiness. And then he was Killed, slaughtered as what? An atoning sacrifice. And the the blood of that goat was poured over the ark and over the altar. And it was there as a symbol of what? Of Jesus' blood atoning for our sins. But importantly, notice this in verse 27. Because the remains of both the bull 
and the goat are taken outside. It says, verse 27, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wish, wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. This is what the writer is referencing. If you go back to Hebrews 13, that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about um, the bodies of those animals who are, are brought outside the camp and they're burned. He's talking about that. The bull and the goat. They were sacrificed for the, the sins of the priest and the, for the sins of everyone. They're brought outside and they're burned. And it's a similar sort of, sort of illustration of what? A complete sacrifice for all the people's sins. Taken out into, we could say, the metaphorical death that was represented by the wilderness. And the writer jumps on this and he connects it to Jesus. Again, verse 12 of Hebrews 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Just as that sacrifice was completed, it was, it was, we could say, consummated outside the camp, so too was Christ's cross outside the gate. If you read John chapter 19, there's multiple references to that same sort of terminology, that they went outside. And again, it's an allusion to Jesus being the better lamb, the better sum and substance of all of what was sacrificed on those altars. That's Christ. Again, that's all doctrine. And here he's going to connect it to something amazing because we haven't only been given this doctrine to believe as he tells us in verse 12. It's this doctrine, as he says, that sanctifies us. Or, as he says in verses 15 and 16, that calls us into service. As he says, look at verse 15. Through him. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, amazingly, what he's hinting at is this amazing fact that you, whether you know it or not, just like the priests of old, you too are a priest. That's what... Peter says in his letter that we are the royal priesthood of God. And yet, what's different though, is that instead of coming to church every, every Sunday and having our animals in hand to offer them as sin offerings to God the Father, all we have to offer are thank offerings. That's what that phrase, sacrifice of praise, is alluding to. And how do we do that? By offering up our lives as a sacrifice of praise in his service. Through Christ. By faith in him and in his name we are called as he says into continual service. And the service looks like this. It looks like receiving the amazing doctrines of God. And then responding in a way that offers ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. It's what Paul is getting at in Romans 12. That famous verse where he says I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's because they're priests by faith. 
And what they have to offer isn't an animal to atone for their sins. Their sins are atoned in Christ. And all we have to do, all we, have to, all we are called to do is to respond with thanks and service and say, Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. That's what it means to be the church. Again, our sin is taken care of in Christ. All that's left for us to do is to respond with thanks. That's what it means to worship. And we worship God by giving of ourselves our time, our energy, our resources as a response to what's been given to us in Christ. It's because of Him that we respond with amazing thanks and service. True worship, then, is always flowing hard and fast from holding fast onto the doctrines of God. When you believe most truly in what Jesus has accomplished for you, and you believe at how infinite that sacrifice of of himself was, that's what inspires us to give of ourselves most freely. You see, we we have it backwards the way we think oftentimes. That the way to inspire you is to tell you all the things you need to be doing. (laughs) Hammering that home is not going to do it. Hammering home all the things that we should be doing for the Lord is not a way to inspire anyone to do anything for the Lord. You know what's going to inspire people who just want to give of themselves? is to hold high the amazing fact that your infinite debt of sin that you could never repay has been paid in full by Christ alone. That's what inspires us to give of ourselves. Amazing grace, how can it be? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Yes, all of it. There's not a single ounce of your iniquity that is left up for you to pay for. Jesus has paid for it. And now we can say and say just thank you, Jesus. That's all that worship is. When we're coming here into this place and we're worshiping the Lord, we're just singing and saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And when you go out and you serve your neighbor, you're saying the same thing. When you go out of your way to serve someone in need, to visit someone in their time of distress, you're saying the same thing. That is a sacrifice of praise unto God. It's a thank offering. It's a response to what's been given that now we can freely give in service. And it's through Christ that we do that. Confession brings us into fellowship and equips us to serve the Lord Himself. There's no greater joy than to be serving next to those who are likewise holding fast to their confession. Again, the writer alludes to this. Look at verse 18, and I must hasten, I'm sorry. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He can't wait to be with this church again. He can't wait to continue to serve them. 
And that brings me lastly to the last point. We are called to be doctrinally responsible. We are called to be continually serving. And also we are called to be relationally aligned. Or we could call it relationally minded. I'll, mean, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Because the service and the fellowship into which we have been called as a church is expressed by being in relationship to each other. Notice the writer demonstrates this in verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. An amazing little detail I think this is. He's sharing, yes, the joy of Timothy being released from prison. But I think take into account the whole New Testament. Because I think it's really fascinating because in 2 Timothy, that letter of Paul to Timothy, Paul goes out of his way. You can read this this in chapter number 1 of 2 Timothy. He encourages Timothy to not be ashamed that Paul was in prison. Paul at the time was in prison for the faith, for the doctrines that he was holding. And Paul literally tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm now in prison. And basically he's telling Timothy, don't let the stigma of my chains sort of distract you or dissuade you from believing in the gospel. Instead, what Paul calls Timothy to do is to sort of share in his sufferings for the gospel of God. And in a way, by associating with Paul, Paul, Timothy would then be sort of standing in solidarity with Paul. Bearing Paul's reproach with him. You could almost say that it was as though Timothy was suffering alongside Paul. And now this comes full circle. Because perhaps timid Timothy is now the one saying the same thing to another church. Don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Instead, we can rejoice that even Timothy, yes, was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And we as the church, the writer is telling him, we can stand in solidarity with him and bear his reproach as well. This brings us to this amazing part, that part of our service for God and for each other means being okay with being reviled and slandered for the sake of the name of Christ. As he says, look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Willingly go outside of the way. Willingly place yourself in a spot where you're going to bear all of the slander and the reproach and all of the hate and all of the angst against you just as Christ endured for you. That's the place we are called to take. That type of fellowship for each other is born out of remembering what? That we are the body of Christ. We're not just a country club. This is not just a a sort of social network of people that is gathering together here. We make up, yes, each and all of us here this morning, we make up the body of Christ, or at least a little part of it. That's what he's getting at in the first couple of verses. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. As those in prison with them. 
And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? His concern, did you notice? It's all about relationships. Between brothers, between siblings, between those who are your neighbors, through those who you don't even know, through those who are mistreated, those who are harmed, through those who are your closest to, your spouse, your next door, your, your best of best friends. And he's saying, keep all of this in mind. You are all part of the body of Christ. You are to be relationally minded in everything that you do and say. We are to be concerned with others before ourselves. And again, the way to remember that is to remember that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. Your faith, yes, might be your faith, but it is a faith in Christ that was never meant to be just a private thing. We are meant to be believers in community with each other. That's what the writer has been talking about this whole time. Believing in Jesus brings you into fellowship with other believers. And that belief is only strengthened. It's only made strong as we remain in fellowship with other believers. Relationships. Paul writes this in Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we through, though many are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. We belong to each other. In relationship to each other. And as he says in 1 Corinthians. If one member suffers. We all suffer together. And if one member is honored. All rejoice together. I think we forget this more often than not. So easy to become self-absorbed and self-consumed. To think only about what you need and what you want. And and what is going on with your little life. Whatever the fast food place is. I don't know it off the top of my head. This is have it your way. Whoever that is. And it's not just a catchy slogan. It is a catchy slogan. Because you can have it your way. And you can have your sandwich just the way you want it. But instead also it serves as a paradigm for all of life. That's the way everyone's living. Why do you think there's so much chaos that is going on in our world? Because everyone is saying I can have it my way. And I don't have to be concerned about anyone next to me. indicative of the mindset of our day we are so consumed with ourselves so much so that there's almost nothing left in the tank to be concerned for others and the writer is saying that ought not to be so of those who are in the body of Christ how do we resist that how do we how do we fight against that temptation to put ourselves first I think it's remembering this That we've been bought by the blood of Christ. And so has the person that you're sitting next to. 
The person next to you, in front of you, the person behind you, the person who annoys you, the person who gets on your nerves, the person that you cannot wait to be around. Everyone in your life, yes, even those who don't know Jesus, they have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And we want our urgent need is to what? Tell them that great news. Be relationally aligned to the fact that everyone around you is a sinner who was was died, who, who Jesus died for. And again, I think that brings us back to the importance of getting our doctrine right. Maybe you're tired of hearing that, but everything flows from that. And this is what his prayer is about, those last verses, and we'll close. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, arm you, furnish you with everything good that you may do his will as he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you see, this is what the church looks like. This is what the church is supposed to look like. It's a body of believers rejoicing in the doctrine of God that made them a family. That's what we're rejoicing in. And we are equipped and furnished with everything from God. We have everything that that is in Christ has been given to us. So much so that we can give of ourselves freely because of that great gift, gift that Christ is. Again, the church is a place where Jesus gets all the glory. That's what he's been ushering this church to see. And I would say, I pray that we as Stonington Baptist Church see it as well. There's no glory in here unless it's given to Jesus alone. No one else should get it. No one else should try and steal it. There's only one person who deserves all of our attention, all of our focus. And yet, and that's the great thing. As we're all focused on the same endeavor, on the same object. That's what it looks like to be the church. Again, as we've noted, and I will note again. When you come to church, it's not just for you. It's not about the speaker meeting your felt needs and you being built up by the worship. It's about your neighbor next to you. And them seeing you sing with all the passion that you have as you realize what you've been given. And then they too are seeing seeing that and being encouraged. And on and on it goes down the line. It's about your neighbor. It's about the person next to you. Everyone here is is being given the opportunity to realign their gaze onto the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has taken away your sins from before the foundation of the world. And then he gets all the glory. Jesus is the reason why we are here. The great shepherd of the sheep. And he's the reason why we will persist. Why we do persist. It might get tougher. I'm no prophet. I'm no person who can predict the future. It might get tougher to stay together as churches. Not just as we see 
what's going on in our political society, but as we see friends fall away or move away, it can discourage us, it can dissuade us, it can get us down. And yet, what do we find? This is a truth that never changes, that never wavers. It's the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We hold high the doctrines of Christ that don't change in a world that's changing all around them. And that's the reason why we're here. That's the reason why we sing. That's the reason why we can sing that song we sung this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Because it was just as true a hundred years ago as it is now. It was just as true a thousand years ago as it is now. And it will be just as true now as it will be a thousand years from now. If the Lord tarries. Jesus is the same. And he is the one that we look to you, my friends. Jesus is better. Do you believe that this morning? Let us pray.